And so this is important because it means that you have an impact on people that you might not be aware of. And other people can impact you in ways that really might fly under your radar. And as I like to say, I can text three little words to a close friend of mine who lives halfway around the world. She doesn't have to see my face. She doesn't have to hear my voice. But three words typed can change her metabolism, can change her breathing, can change her heart rate in an instant. So we do have this impact on each other for better or for worse. And that's an important thing to understand when you're trying to, if you're curious about what kind of person you want to be or whether you want to be somebody who metaphorically makes deposits into other people's potty budgets or makes withdrawals from those budgets. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Globe Podcast. The results of Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett's research are so mind-blowing, even she admits that it has taken her around 25 years to believe in her own results. Her work challenges what we think we know about how the brain shapes the mind, how emotions are made, and our sense of free will. Dr. Barrett is the author of How Emotions Are Made, and more recently, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Her work illuminates how the brain uses the past to predict the future, which then becomes the present. Now that seems challenging to comprehend. It was for me too, and we begin to unpack what that means in this episode. As she notes throughout her work, our body and our mind are deeply interconnected. How we experience our body, our interoception, drives our actions and culture wires the brain. As she shares with us in this episode, we have more control over this process than we may think or feel we do, and that invites us to shape the kind of person we are and want to be. Our conversation begins with Dr. Barrett telling the story of her daughter struggling with depression and anxiety beginning in middle school and how the dialogue that developed helped shape some of Dr. Barrett's work. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Hi, Dr. Barrett. Thank you so much for being here and accepting our invitation. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. Thank you. Well, your two books are incredible. The first one, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, and most recently, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, as I've heard you say, are the results of decades of research. And in my opinion, not as a neuroscientist, not as an academic, uh, there's such an important converse, uh, contribution to the advancement of how we understand and make sense of human nature. And I guess that's part of why your research is amongst the top 1% cited. I, uh, you definitely have a future fan. I, I will certainly be on the lookout for all of your books going forward. And I know a lot of what we'll cover today is counterintuitive and I've appreciated hearing you say how uh, it's taken you 25 years or so to even believe your own results. And I was noticing as I was reading your books over the past couple of weeks, nearly every time I would emerge from a moment of reading uh, to share some cool insight uh, with my wife, who is also named Lisa, <laughs> uh, 
that would then <laughs> lead to a wonderful conversation, which was then yet again, another concept generating conversation between us. Mm -hmm. and, and we'll get into that word concept in, in a moment, I suppose. But I'm wondering before we get into the theory of constructed emotion, if, is it possible for you to make the case right up front for why people should read your books? And there are two comments that from you that caught my attention in your author's note at the beginning of seven and a half lessons about the brain. You say these essays don't tell you what to think about human nature, but they do invite you to think about the kind of human you are or want to be. And I've heard you say, and you might have said this uh, in the book as well about your first book, is that it is in part a love letter to your daughter. So I wonder, before we dive into the theory of constructed emotion, is, is there a way to summarize at a high level an argument for why it would be helpful for our listeners to really spend time with this material? You know, you almost have me in tears. So I'm like, uh, I'll try to be, I, I really appreciate the kind words and I, uh, but I also, I think even more appreciate how closely you've paid attention. So uh, um, I think that I wrote, there were many reasons that I wrote how emotions are made because when you study the brain and the body and how they work together to create really your mind, um, you discover that nothing has a simple single cause. So everything is very complex um, with a capital C as in complexity theory, <laughs> complex causes. Um, there were many reasons why I wrote the book, but a major motivator was that my daughter, um, who was uh, an exuberant, exuberant child, hit middle school and uh, like many, many girls her age, you know, started to struggle. And, um, and I think of our journey as a success story in the sense that she's still alive. And um, she went to college and she's now doing an MBA and she's, um, you know, but she struggled and she struggled um, with depression and anxiety, which at this point is an epi at epidemic levels, not just in the United States, but worldwide. In fact, the World Health Organization has named depression the leading cause of um, disability um, and death uh, now taking over heart disease actually mm -hmm. so um so it's uh, you know i think i have my own story about my research and and how i came to sort of question the traditional approaches to understanding emotion but in line with that at certain point my daughter started to struggle and I, what I always do when I want to understand something is I go find research papers to explain it to me, you know, like I really very data-driven person. And, um, I just took a deep dive into trying to understand, uh, what was, you know, trying to piece together what, what might be happening to her. And in the process, you know, I learned a lot, not just about, you know, depression, um, and, and in adolescence, but I, I learned about many things um, having to do with very, very basic processes that create your mind and and control your actions. And 
I wanted her to understand. I wanted to write it in a way that she would understand and that she would see herself in. And I also wanted to make my insights available to other people just in case they were helpful. And along the way, I discovered that really, even though I was writing about emotion, emotion, understanding how your brain in conversation with your body and the other brains and bodies around you, um, how your brain creates emotion is really a good window into understanding how really your brain create, you know, in this conversation creates your mind and controls your actions and, you know, really determines the, the kind of person that you are. And you have more control over that process than you might think or feel that you do. And if we have more control, it means we also have more responsibility. And so lurking in how emotions are made are these tendrils of a large of larger points that can be made. And after I finished that book and it was, you know, very well received and it it helped a lot of people if emails are to be believed, which I found very gratifying. Um, things were also happening around me, you know, and uh, there's political strife, there's climate change, there's like all of these things. And we are living in a country where half of the country felt alienated when uh, Barack Obama was president and the other half of the country felt alienated when Trump was president. And I just felt like I have something to say about these situations, not so much, you know, telling people what they should be thinking, but more what they should be thinking about, what they could be thinking about that would let them be a little bit more deliberate um, about their own behavior and their impact on other people. We will most certainly come back to relationships and responsibility. How old was your daughter when you finished it? And did she read it? What came out of that? Yeah, she did read it actually, but not, of course, you know, she was, um, so I finished the book in 2000. 16 ish. And then, you know, it takes uh, about a year to get it into print. Um, um, and so she was in her, you know, she was just finishing high school. And, um, you know, she, <laughs> she started at a certain point, she started to refer to this book as her little brother. Now, I have to tell you, she's an only child. I mean, we're very close with we have nieces and nephews, and I we have a goddaughter we're very close with. And so we have other other children in our lives, but, um, but, you know, she, um, even though I still made dinner every night and we ate together as a family every night and I still, you know, her cuddles, like, you know, I would read her stories before bed and, um, uh, you know, she, we refer to these as cuddles. And even when she was a teenager, you know, I, we referred to them as cuddles, but our cuddles became more like, us sitting in her room or her sitting in my office and having these like really deep conversations before she would go to sleep. And so all of those things continued. Um, but she was in a lot of pain and she was in a lot of pain, a lot of, a lot of the time. And there was really, I mean, in the end, I, I think, you know, 
the most important thing, you know, that she ever said to me in, in my life, I think was, you know, mom, you gave me life twice. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. It also brings me to tears every time I think about it though, honestly. And, um, but, but still at during, as she was going through this, it didn't really matter what I said or what I did, or, I mean, I, I didn't make things worse. And there were some things I did that made things better for a brief amount of time, but she became clinically depressed and that required, you know, um, more, um, treatment than I could, you know, provide. Um, and so I don't think the book actually had an impact on her until later when she read it a second time, Mm -hmm. when she wasn't depressed anymore. Right. So I think the, the first reading, I don't think really, um, I don't think really had much of an impact, but then one day when she was in, in college, she, as a mother's gift, she gave me a book review of, <laughs> of how emotions are made. And I just thought that was the best, you know, it was just the best Mother's Day present, really. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, I could see how in the morass and the intensity of, of the pain of, of depression and, and other symptoms, um, that it would be hard to interact with this material in a sort of metacognitive way or as a way to um, adapt and, and, and be more uh, receptive. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about depression that you have to understand, and I think we all, when I say what I'm about to say, I think it will make sense, but you know, depression is like, um, you're, it's like you're locked into a particular way of experiencing yourself in the world. And it's not that you don't want to be um, dislodged from that. It's that really you're, you just don't have the spoons. Like your, your energy, you know, I talk about your brain, your brain's most important job is regulating your body. And the metaphor is it's running a budget for your body. Well, depression is a bankrupt body budget. I mean, you just, you, you can't, you know, you have trouble moving even sometimes and also learning those are the two most expensive things your brain does moves your body and learn something new and so she um i won't say she resisted but i was frantically flailing trying to find you know any combination of things and eventually i did find a combination of things that helped that nudged her in the you know in in a better direction and occasionally i would come up with things like just out of the blue, you know, so one time I was, I can't remember if this is actually in the book or not. Um, Cause it's been, you know, I ha- I myself haven't read it since I wrote it. So I don't really ever go back and read my own work. Um, but um, you know, I was caught in O'Hare. Uh, I couldn't get home. Um, uh, I was, the flights were canceled, whatever. And she calls me and she's like 13 years old and she calls me and she's hysterical on the phone. She's just crying, crying, crying. So, so you know, she'd been bullied very badly that day. And I'm, I'm frantically trying to think like, what can I say? I'm, uh, you know, a thousand miles away. And I said to her, um, but you know, I thought, Oh, simulation, you know, get her to predict differently. That's what I needed. I need to get her out of this moment. And she needs to understand that she has a future. She has to be able to predict into the future. This is something adolescents have a really hard time doing. And it's also very hard to do when you're depressed. And um, so I said to her, can I, can I talk to your 18 year old self? Hmm. And she, you know, the crying stops and she's like, 
in a very what she imagined to be a grown-up voice like hello mom i mean she calls so you know when she's 13 years old she calls me mama right so she's like hello mom <laughs> hello mom and and i say oh so oh i'm caught in the airport and over here and you know blah blah, blah. and you know do you remember the last time i was caught here i think maybe you were like 13 and i don't know maybe you had like a bad day at school or something and she's like oh i barely remember that she's playing along right yeah, oh yeah. i barely remember that mom and i'm like do you even remember what those girls' names were? Like, I can't even remember their names. Do you even remember their names? And she's like, no, I don't remember their names. And I'm like, the only thing I can remember is whether I was struggling about whether I should have a chocolate milkshake or a vanilla milkshake because I'm stuck in an airport, so I'm going to have a milkshake. And she's like, I think you had fries, mom. I think that's usually what you have when you're stuck in an airport. And so she's, you know, but her, you know, her mood immediately changed, mm -hmm. right? And um. And then at the end of the conversation, she just paused and said, you know, I love you, mama. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, within a couple of hours, she's back in the hole in the, the, that yeah, dark, yeah. you know, hole. And I think um, it was hard. For, it was hard for me as a mother understanding, understanding the metabolic drain that is depression, but still wanting to do something to um, make her feel better. Yeah, I've heard you speak to even giving the brain, nervous system, the body in general, those brief breaks is helpful in terms of managing the body budget. You mentioned simulation, prediction, uh, the process I think you were referring to with what you were doing with her, like a recategorization uh, or a reframing. I wonder if we can start to get now into kind of the the science of it, the core of, of this, because sure. it's really fascinating. And there are so many definitions and so many different words that mean the same as other words. So this can get confusing pretty quickly. For example, you note the process called categorization is also known as experience, perception, conceptualization, pattern completion, perceptual inference, memory, simulation, attention, morality, and mental inference. Well, you know how you know something is important in psychology or neuroscience is that a bunch of people give it a bunch of names, right? The more names it has, the more important it is, it, it seems to me. And so a lot of things that we think of as that have different names and therefore people think of as being very different phenomena or different processes are actually pretty much just the same thing. It's just different ways of describing the same thing. So I wonder, in order to present the theory in a way that most humans can access this counterintuitive way of, of understanding what really is going on, would the story of, say, encountering a snake be a good example? Sure, I've used this example before. And um, I'll say that um, what I'm gonna describe is, um, I just actually, I wanted, I wanted to say about, about my daughter, you know, she now actually uses many of the strategies in the book. So fast forward a number of years and she's, you know, she uses them spontaneously. She'll tell me about things that she does or, ways that she, she's adjusted her meaning making and the impact it has. So I guess the point is that, you know, you, one, 
one thing that I think comes out maybe more, a little more clearly, I, I think in seven and a half lessons than, than in how motions are made, although it's in that book too, is that every new experience that you cultivate for yourself, it becomes your past and your brain draws on past experiences in order to construct your experiences and control your actions in the present. So in a very real sense, you're always cultivating your past for the purposes of um, predicting your brain, predicting and constructing your experiences better, uh, more efficiently in the future. So you're always cultivating a past that will determine who you will be in the future. And once you know that, that's a very powerful piece of knowledge to have. It's not easy to implement, I have to say, <laughs> but it is, but you can implement it. And, 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 um, uh, and it's, uh, many people find it life-changing to, to understand that. Um, but I guess what I'll say is, is this, that what I'm about to describe sounds so counterintuitive that even as I describe it, I don't, I like, if I hadn't seen the data, I don't know that I would believe it, you know, because it sounds so crazy. So, you know, you're walking, let's say you're walking in the forest, you're, you're walking, you're taking a walk in the forest and you're with a friend and, um, you know, um, you hear a rustling in the, um, in the leaves. And when I say you hear a rustling in the leaves, I mean, you, your brain is always taking in sense data all the time from all around you, right? So you have sensory surfaces, your retina in your eye, your cochlea in your ears, you know, your taste buds on your tongue. I mean, basically, you know, we have all kinds of sensory surfaces. We're always taking in information. You might not, that might not be in the foreground of your attention. So you might not even have been aware that you heard a rustling, but your, what your brain is going to do is it's going to, it's not going to ask itself, what is that sound? It's going to ask itself, what does that sound like? Like in my past experience, what happened when I was walking in the woods and it was this light out and this temperature and, you know, I, that, and I heard this sound, it's not doing any of this consciously, but it's taking the whole sensory array and asking, what is this similar to in my past? And when it does this, it's um, in psychology, a group of things which are similar to each other, like events or objects are called a category. So what your brain is doing is drawing on your past experiences to create a category in the moment. You can think about your brain as a category constructor. It's constantly constructing categories using past experience. The other name for past experience is memory. You don't have a, an awareness of yourself remembering, but that is what your brain is doing all the time. It's constant, even for your ability to understand what these sounds are, these which are phonemes, which make words, which refer to something your ability to understand what these noises mean that I'm making coming out of my mouth um, depends on a lot of learning statistical relationships between sounds and what they predict. And so when your brain is sort of making meaning of that rustling in the leaves, what it's to make meaning, what that means is it's generating predictions, remembering, assembling predictions from memory to 
anticipate what's going to happen next. And the first thing it does is it, it anticipates the changes inside your body that are necessary to move your muscles, to move your body in some way. And it's copies of those motor predictions that become the predictions about your experience of what you will experience in the next moment. So your brain basically figuratively asks itself, well, the last time I prepared, I heard a rustle and it was, you know, and there wasn't much wind and it was, you know, dusk and, you know, I'm walking in the woods and, you know, the last time I, that all these things were happening and I prepared myself, you know, and I prepared my body to, you know, do something. What did I see? What did I hear? What did I feel? And so all of these things are, they're not like um, abstract predictions or memories are not abstract things that um, they're, they're the brain changing the firing of its own neurons to prepare to hear and see and feel certain things. Um, and so that rustle in the leaves could be many things. It could be, it could be the wind. It could be a chipmunk. It could be a snake. Um, it could be a person with a gun. If you live in certain parts of the country, it could be many different things. Your brain, in order to prepare you to act, your brain has to predict what it might be and then start to prepare your actions in advance. Um, and so one possibility is that it prepares you to see a snake and the snake does in fact slither out and the image of the snake confirms those predictions. Um, and then the, the sense data from the snake are, is really there only to confirm or correct the prediction. So if you predicted, your brain predicted you'll see a snake, then your heart is already racing to prepare you to run. Um, and uh, seeing the snake, like having the snake slither out, I should say, just confirms those predictions and then poof, you're off. Now, of course, what you experience this as, it takes, you know, upwards of an entire second to prepare your body to move, which you're not aware of any of that, right? So from your experience, what you experience consciously is you see a snake and your heart races and you run, but actually your brain's predicted the whole thing. It's also possible that there is no snake, right? That no snake slithers out. And this is an opportunity for your brain to take in new information that it didn't predict. Um, and we have, you know, a really fancy name for that. In science, we call it learning. That's what learning is. So this is an opportunity to learn and tune your predictions for next time. Um, but your heart might still be racing, <laughs> right? And so your brain will try to make sense of that racing heart in some other way. Um, you know, like maybe you will, you know, find the joke that your friend just told a little funnier, or maybe you'll find it a little more lame, or um, maybe, um, uh, you know, there are multiple ways that your brain could make sense of that racing heart. Um, another possibility, though, is that there is no snake, but your brain doesn't learn and it doesn't adjust. It just goes with its own guess. And you literally see a snake where there is no snake. And that also that also happens. I mean, we've all had that experience where we we see something and then we blink and, you know, it's not there. It's something else. And that would be the affective realism? 
not the effect of realism. It feels real what we saw, but it wasn't really there. And you know, there are very, very serious consequences for affective realism in real life. So, you know, police officers seeing guns where there are no guns and um, jurors making decisions about defendants based on their gut feeling, which, you know, they believe it's actually embedded in the law. This idea that we can read the mind and intention of other people just by looking at them. And that's just not true. I mean, there's just it's just, that's just false. I mean, um, we make guesses and, um, and the gut feelings that we have are, are part of those guesses. They're not evidence that the guesses are correct or not correct. So constantly we're preparing actions and experiences in advance of stuff actually happening out in the world, but that's not how we experience things. We experience things as, um, you know, the brain experiences itself um, as reacting to things, even though it's very, very rare that we um, that we react. Um, and what what a reaction really is is the brain preparing a prediction and not waiting to find out whether it's true or not, just acting on it immediately because probably your life is at stake, or your brain believes your life is at stake. Yeah. What's so profound and really hard for me to wrap my head around, at least initially, was is that the experience that we're having when we're reacting or responding to that noise is that it's not a reaction to that noise or that sound vibration interacting with us. You say somewhere at one point in your book that scientists now uh, are fairly certain that your brain actually begins to sense the moment-to-moment -moment changes in the world before light waves, chemicals, and other sense data interact with our brain. Absolutely, there's we there's there is really good evidence for that now. And I mean, this is here's the one that I I use all the time with audiences, just because I think it's so cool, and everyone's had this experience. So you know, you're thirsty. It's a hot day. You're really really thirsty, and so you chug back, you know, a, a glass of ice water. And then poof, your your thirst is quenched, or maybe you need a second glass. But the point is, after you finish drinking, you're not thirsty anymore. The thing is that it takes at least 20 minutes for the water to make it from your stomach into your bloodstream so that it can get to your brain and your brain can register um, the change in the osmolarity of your blood. So what is quenching your thirst 20 minutes before the sense data get to your brain? And the answer is, it's prediction because you've, you've had a lifetime of learning, right? Um, where um, your brain um, has learned that 20 minutes after drinking, the, thir the thirst is, is, is quenched. So it quenches your thirst, right, immediately. Or, you know, you can start to taste something before you put it in your mouth. And then if it isn't what you expect, it's a very jarring experience, <laughs> right? So there are some really fun experiments that are done about, you know, you give somebody um, plated in a, in a ice cream dish, uh, you know, a, a pink fluffy um, substance with little dark flecks of, um, of dark pink and, you know, people think it's, it's strawberry ice cream that they're about to eat and they put it in their mouth and it's salmon mousse. 
you know, even if you like salmon moose, it's the prediction error. The amount of prediction is so jarring that, um, you know, it's because you actually start to taste things before they even enter your mouth. And pretty much everything works like that. Yeah. And I find it interesting as I've been sitting with your material, when I have that experience or historically, when I've had that experience, I would just have that experience. It would just be a, a jarring experience. Whereas now when I have it, it's an experience that's wrapped in this container or seen now through this framework of how emotions are not triggered. Like we create them and you know, maybe we can move on here now to um, following from your example with the water in terms of what our brain's most important job is. Because I suspect that in that moment of drinking water or feeling as though I, I want to drink water, there's some body budget consideration or I'm experiencing something um, interoceptively that is suggesting it's time to drink some water. So can you speak to how our brains, it now seems, have not evolved for thinking, but rather our brain's most important job is to manage allostasis. Another popular word for that is homeostasis or the homeostatic imperative. But given that many of us likely sense that our brain is spending most of its time and energy on thinking, the idea that our brain's main job is to manage allostasis is very counterintuitive. Yeah, it's, it's very, very counterintuitive. Yeah. So homeostasis is um, as probably many of your listeners know, um, you know, it's returning a system to a set point. So you could think about, you know, a good, good example is, te is temperature. You know, you have a range of temperatures that you can exist in, that your body can exist in. And if it gets too high or too low, you know, uh, your brain's going to attempt to do various things to get the temperature back to some range, you know, which we call a set point. And it's reactive, but Many systems don't work that way in your body. And in fact, even the ones that do work that way have to all be coordinated with each other. So you have many, many systems inside your body that have to all be coordinated in order for you to stay alive. Um, and that coordination requires energy and that energy has to be spent efficiently. And so energy efficiency it turns out, is a major concern for biological systems. And we would say it's a major constraint or selection pressure in evolution. And so in the seven and a half lessons, I tell the first half lesson is really about why we even have a brain. Like, you know, brains are really expensive organs. Um, your brain is three pounds of squishy material, but sitting between your ears, but it's actually 20% of your metabolic budget. So that's the most expensive organ you've got. And um, why do we even have one? What's it good for? And the answer is, or an answer is that um, your brain's most important job is not to think or to see or to react to the world or to feel. Your brain's most important job is to regulate the systems of your body, to coordinate those systems in, an, in a metabolically efficient way. And the most efficient way to regulate a system is to run a model of that system, to predict what's going to happen next in that system, and then correct it when necessary. And 
So from a, an energetic standpoint, from a signal processing standpoint, from an engineering standpoint, systems are predictive. Um, the most efficient systems are predictive. And when we look at the anatomy of your brain and the evolution of your brain and the function of your brain, we can see that your brain is trying to anticipate the needs of your body and attempt to meet those needs before they arise. And so the way that your brain does this is by using the sensory array, both inside your body, the so it's modeling what, what it believes to be going on inside your body and what it believes to be going on outside in the world. And it's making guesses about what's gonna happen next. And then the stuff that actually is happening in the world and the stuff that is occurring in your body, that stuff sends sense data to your brain, which your brain just uses to confirm its predictions or to correct them. And, and so I, I just want you to think, Derek, about what this means for a minute. It means that if your brain predicts that you will see a snake and lo and behold, the snake actually slithers out, your brain is already firing, the neurons are already firing in a way um, that predicts the snake is there. So all the snake is doing is confirming in its existence. The information doesn't make it very far into your brain at all because your neurons are already firing in the pattern that are that's necessary. So that means what's happening really is that the world, at first when you're born, you, you're born... You know, little infant brains are not miniature adult brains. They're brains that are waiting for wiring instructions from the world, from the physical world and from the social world. And over time, a child's brain learns to build a model over many years. In fact, our brains are still building models of our world and of our bodies. It's just that the learning is slower, you know, because we're older. But for little kids, it's very fast. But at a certain point, the world is there to confirm the, the prior learning, right? So basically, for the most part, your brain predicts pretty well. And if it doesn't, that means you will probably develop an illness, or it means maybe you move to another culture and you have to completely adjust your model to that culture. But actually, it turns out that, you know, acculturation is a major stress for people and immigrants actually not usually the immigrants the first generation but it's usually the second generation the, the kids who have major major metabolic illnesses because they're it's a it, you know it's very very um metabolically taxing um to completely uh adjust your your you know your predictions but there's a lesson in that and the lesson is Everything you experience and everything you do is some combination of what's in your head and what's outside in the world and in your body, but it's mostly what's in your head. So there, that, that's a, I think that's instructive, um, both for, for better and for worse, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I live in an area where we can get rattlesnakes and I saw one maybe two months ago in the back of where we live. And I love snakes. I had snakes as a child, so I have a, some, maybe a somewhat of a different relationship with snakes than, than most. And when I go back to that same area where I saw it, I'm, and I'm scanning and I'm searching for a snake. After spending time with your work, 
I realized that I'm actually seeing a snake. It's just a very low resolution or the fidelity of that image is, is not what it would be if there was actually a snake there. And I find that fascinating. I'm, I'm actually seeing a snake, even though there isn't one there. And yeah. And in fact, if you couldn't conjure the image of the, so if your brain can't use past experience to assemble a prediction, you will be experientially blind. It will just be noise to you. You know, that old adage, like if a, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make it sound? And people act like there's no answer to that. Well, there's an answer. The answer is no. No, it doesn't make a sound. It might, it might cause air pressure to change, like waves in the air, the frequency of the waves to change. But if there's no ear to transduce that information, there's no sound. And in, if there's no concept, if your brain can't make a, a category, on the fly from past experience, then it's just a, it's just a noise. It's like, it's like a language that you can't speak. It's just sounds. Yeah. I mean, here's a profound statement from your book. If you don't have the emotion concept for fear, then you can't experience fear. Yeah. And so the problem is that, you know, you get someone else coming along who does have the concept and they look at the person and they go, well, that person's clearly fearful, but for the person themselves, that's not how their brain has made sense of those sense data. So to them, they're not experiencing fear. Fear isn't, actually no emotion exists independent of a perceiver. So, um, you know, it's like people wanna say, oh, dogs have, dogs have emotions. Well, dogs don't have human emotions. I mean, dogs feel pain, they feel pleasure, and they may have other, I mean, every animal can make categories so dogs can make categories too but does a dog have a capacity to make abstract human concepts the way a human does and the answer is no it, they don't and you can you can tell yourself they do and that's okay because from your perspective is your dog guilty yeah from your perspective you experience your dog as being guilty but does your dog experience guilt in the way that you experience guilt <laughs> Probably not. And I say this having a dog and I love my dog, Luna, and she's wonderful. And of course she adores me, but you know, uh, she's attached to me. And I understand when she sees me, she sees the person who feeds her whenever she wants to be fed. That's why I'm her favorite person in the house because I feed her whatever she, you know, whenever she wants to be fed. Um, but you know, the point is that, um, to ask the question, is the person really fearful, is the wrong question. That's not a scientific question. The question is, are they experiencing fear? Does Is their brain making sense of what's going on as a state of fear? And does the perceiver experience that person as fearful? Those are answerable questions. I want to go back to your comment about much of our experience being mostly what's in our head and how you refer to how our day-to-day -day is predominantly a carefully controlled hallucination and that in a sense, our brain is wired for delusion and that through continual prediction, we experience a world through our own creation that's ultimately held in check by the sensory world. Yes, exactly. So, uh, you know, I started to talk about the brain as constructing hallucinations, I think back in 2011 or 2012, um, you know, that um, 
basically your brain is starting to, when your brain makes a prediction, it's actually changing the firing of its own neurons before any sense data arrive. So it starts to prepare your experiences and prepare your actions before there's any evidence of the, you know, sense data. Uh, and and um, which is just incre which is incredible. I know it's, it's just incredible. It but you know what? But the, actually, this is something I talk about in um, in how emotions are made. But there's also a really great video online about how about baseball and how baseball couldn't exist as a sport. In fact, there was just a great example of football. This in football when. Um, uh, Tampa Bay played um, the Patriots and, you know, so Tom Brady was playing against his old teammates and they were using prediction against him. Basically, they were setting themselves up, you know, <laughs> in formation so that his brain would predict that they would do one thing and then they did something else. And then, you know, but he's Tom Brady. So, of course, he adapted. He learned. He 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 learned the prediction error and and Tampa Bay won the the game. But the point is that no, no sports like that have anything to do with hitting a ball, like soccer, baseball, football, lacrosse, hockey, none of them would exist without a predicting brain, um, which turned me instantly into a sports fan when before I had no interest in sports whatsoever, which I know is like, it's a heretical thing to say when you live in Boston. You know, I'm from Toronto, Maple Leafs, right? And I live in Boston, Boston Red Sox, you know, but seriously, I'm like now completely fascinated with, with sports. Uh, in a way that I never was before because of this this reason. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I and I find myself extending it just to my general day to day, even interacting with someone face to face, to step outside of the interaction for a moment and to think I'm engaging here with another embodied entity, a human, and we're both in this ongoing, never never ending, mostly unaware process of predicting. Yes, you're in a, you're basically in a dance and um, your, your predictions can be synchronized, in which case you're communicating really well, or they cannot be synchronized, in which case you are not predicting really well. And once you understand that you don't read people's faces and you don't read their body language, there is no such thing as body language. You're just guessing. Your brain's just guessing at what they mean, this body movements. It allows you to be curious and I would say humble mm. in a way that maybe before you felt pretty sure um, uh, of your of those guesses, um, or at least that's what I would hope. Yeah, I want to come back to that, the concept of certainty. Uh, on relationships quickly, you say the best thing for your nervous system is another human being. The worst thing for your nervous system is also another human being. Yeah, that's right. So another thing that's important to understand about body budgeting is that we, as a species, we didn't evolve to budget our for our bodies by ourselves. So when an infant is born, an infant cannot uh, body budget on its own. It doesn't have the circuitry. It can't even move its own limbs under you know <laughs> circumstances. So that infant is completely dependent on you for body budgeting. And that body budgeting dependency is really what motivates the infant to learn things, to, to prefer certain things and, and to learn certain things faster. And we also, this is also true for grownups. And, you know, we are the caretakers of each other's nervous systems. And it doesn't matter whether you believe that's true. It actually doesn't matter what your political <laughs> leanings are. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter what you believe because it just is the way things work. It's like gravity. And so, 
Yeah, it's like gravity, exactly. You can you can wish gravity didn't exist, but it does. And so this is important because it means that you have an impact on people that you might not be aware of. And other people can impact you in ways that really might fly under your radar. And, you know, as I like to say, you know, I can text three little words to a close friend of mine who lives halfway around the world. She doesn't have to see my face. She doesn't have to hear my voice. But three words typed can change her metabolism, can change her breathing, can change her, you know, her heart rate in an instant. So we do have this impact on each other for better or for worse. And um, that's an important thing to understand um, when you're trying to, if you're curious about, you know, what kind of person you want to be or whether you want to be somebody who metaphorically, you know, makes deposits into other people's potty budgets or, or makes withdrawals from those budgets. I want to come back to the responsibility part. Uh, I really hope we have time for that. Uh, I think one more thing that I think might be important to elaborate on is meaning and how emotions are meaning. That's another kind of mind bender that I think is hard to wrap our heads around. Yeah, so when your brain is doing this category construction, it's 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 assembling past experiences for the purpose of predicting what's going to happen next. It's creating a category and when the sense data arrive from the body and from the brain from the world and there's a match, we say, "Oh, those sense data have been categorized. They've been given meaning." So these categories that your brain is constantly constructing outside your awareness are, are sort of like possible futures that will explain where the sense, like what the sense data mean. And so it's not like your brain detects a rustle in the, in the leaves, evaluates it in some way, and then makes meaning of it by, you know, evaluating it. Is this scary or not? Is this threatening or not? Is this relevant to me or not? It's like, doesn't, it doesn't do those things. And then plans an action. What's happening is your brain is constructing this category as a set of possible actions. With a goal in mind. With a goal in mind. And the experiences and the actions that derive derive from the category that's been constructed. And so if your brain is using past experiences of fear that that were that we that you learned as experiences of fear to construct the category in the present moment, then it's in the process of constructing another instance of fear. Um, if the snake is actually there and it confirms um, the predictions, then poof, you have another instance of fear. So emotions are, but, and, you know, if there's no snake there and your brain learns that, then, then, you know, it's a, it's a different, it becomes a category, an instance of a different category, maybe the category relief. Um, and so emotions aren't, don't happen to you. They're, they're made by you. They're made by your brain in this very automatic way. And they're not wired into your brain from birth. They are made by your brain you know, as needed in, in ways that are 
tuned to the situation as you've learned it in the past. So that's important, right? There's no objective reality when it comes to anger and sadness and fear or any other emotion. They're just ways of making meaning, making the sense, the sensory conditions of your body meaningful in relation to what your brain understands as happening around you in the world. Right. So if we extend the snake experience to say a work environment, we're having a difficult conversation with our boss and we consider uh, emotional IQ as a tool in our tool set. Um, you write about how an aspect of emotional IQ is something called emotional granularity. So when we find ourselves within a difficult conversation, we may sense that we're being triggered, meaning that I may sense the other person is triggering me when in fact that person is not triggering me in the sense that we typically think of it as uh, rather it's the other way around. I create that instance of emotion as a prediction for how to show up in that moment. As you say in your book, I'm trying to get my brain to construct the most useful instance of the most useful emotion concept in a given situation. That's right. And I'll likely experience more success in that moment, the more emotion concepts I have to choose from, or in other words, the greater my emotional granularity. Can you walk us through how emotional granularity factors into flexibility of response in the moment? And as a side note, I, I found it really hard to categorize these processes linearly as a way to help me organize this in my head and, and memorize it. It's hard to do it linearly. That's why it took me three and a half years to write that book. You know, I, mean, I tried really uh, hard to, to, to create a linear model of this, like this happens, then that happens. But then it seemed to be like a decision tree with feedback loops. And then there's a time component. Yeah, it's really challenging. So for example, when I say, well, you know, your brain is using past experiences of fear, well, where the hell did those come from? <laughs> and the answer is somebody taught you. Somebody somebody taught you how to make sense of the of the sense data, of the, you know, breathing hard, you know, heavily and the racing hard or the sleepy feeling or that somebody taught you. They might have actually literally instructed you the way we teach little kids, like, look, that's a doggy. Look, that's a, you know, a kitty. Look, that's a truck. Look, Bobby's afraid. Oh, Bobby's, Bobby's angry. Oh, Susie's, um, you know, exhilarate. You know, Susie's happy or whatever, you know? Um, I think you should write a parenting book. How to speak to your child in the first Know, you know, honey, years. if I could clone myself, I would write a parenting book and I would write a book on authoritarianism and I would write a bunch of children's books. And I would also, write, I mean, there are a lot of things. There's really, it's very rich. Um, it's a very rich domain. And and it matters actually how you talk to your kids. It matters because- Yeah, yeah you talk about it, that in the book. And it matters how you talk in front of your kids. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. I mean- they're like little sponges and words for little kids are invitations to learn how to make categories. And this is a very like little, little, little brains, like three, four month old kids um, can use, even before they know what words mean, words are special 
and in the way that they work in in a human brain. And they invite people, even little littles, to um, learn certain types to learn to make certain types of categories that they that they didn't know how to make before. So even when you're talking to you know someone else in a child's presence, they are learning um, what those words refer to. And this includes emotion words. But it turns out that the more words you use and the more um, categories, concepts, they're really conceptual categories, and we're not going to be able to unpack what that means. So you'll just have to read the book. Um, but the more categories your brain can make, the more flexible your brain is in um, in regulating your body and planning action. So you can think about words and concepts as tools um, for regulation. And it turns out that the more words you know and the more concepts your brain can make, the the more flexible your actions are, even in really stressful circumstances. And what really surprised me actually was the discovery that um, increases in um, emotional granularity, the granularity or precision with which your brain can make emotions because you know more emotion words and your brain can make more emotion concepts or categories, turns out to be protective um, uh, of your physical health. And it means, and people who are more granular can recover more quickly from physical illness. And at first, this really puzzled me. It's not what I would have predicted at all um, scientifically. But when I came to understand the role of concepts in in predictively regulating the body, um, then it all made sense. So if I'm in that moment with my boss, and instead of me thinking that person triggered me to feel angry, it's because of everything that we discussed that I've created potentially an emotion. And if I'm using a more emotionally granular way of thinking about what's going on in that moment, I might come up with, actually, I'm annoyed instead of just angry. And that because of what I'm experiencing in my body, what's happening out here in the, in the environment, uh, whether that be words being spoken or the temperature of the room, or if I didn't sleep well or hadn't eaten yet, like my yeah. body then is predicting that I need to, or would be more successful in this moment if I launched the simulation or the prediction of annoyed. Exactly. So I would say, um, and you know, it's a very good, it's a very good day for me to make the distinction between rage, anger, and annoyance. Um, uh, you know, I've had one of those days and, um, like we all do. And, you know, there's a difference between what your brain will predict well, the the actions and the physical state that it will it will predict for you know anger versus annoyance or frustration, but even something like today, what I did was I I the concept I made was um, you are blocking my goals, <laughs> not I'm angry at you, but th this person is making it harder for me to achieve my goals 
And what that led me to do was be curious about why that was the case. So instead of constructing anger, I constructed curiosity. You know, that curiosity had a little heat to it. I'm not going to lie. But I was, but I tried to be curious. Like, I wonder what, what, what would make this person do and say these things. Um, and I'm going to try to find that out. And that turned out to be a good strategy, you know, um, but it's a harder strategy to enact if I haven't slept or well, or, or if I'm not feeling well, you know, if I've, um, if I'm achy or, you know, if I, I haven't, um, dr had enough to drink and it, you know, you, you may think, well, you know, there are very clear signs, um, you know, if you're dehydrated, you'll, you'll want to drink. And if you're, you know, sleep deprived, you'll want to sleep. And if you, you know, but you'll, but that's actually not how things work at all. You know, the, the for example, the, the main symptom that you experience when you're dehydrated is, is fatigue. You don't, you're not thirsty. You want to lie down and go to sleep. Um, so, uh, you know, and the, the tug in your chest that you feel when you have you know, that burning sensation in your chest that you feel when you have heartburn. Ooh, that, let me say that again. Or when, that a, burning or when a, uh, a notification goes off. Yeah. And your phone isn't turned off. Like, what's that about? Um, that burning sensation that you feel in your chest when you have heartburn is the same burning feeling that you have um, uh, at the, that are early signs of a, of a heart attack. They're not, different feelings that you are confusing. They are literally the same ones that your brain can make sense of in very different ways, depending on the, the situation that you're in. And then unlike with your boss, you know, if you, when you have burning in your chest or you have tightness in your, your um, arm or, or what have you, if you <laughs> make the wrong guess, it, that, that can be fatal. My, the best uh, concept that I learned to make actually came from my husband, my husband's reading of, of um, my books. Um, and he said, so are you telling me that like when someone thinks badly of you or is, is being unkind to you that you can just categorize that as electrical activity in their brain. And then <laughs> the whole power of that evaluation just, just goes away. And I was like, that's really brilliant. I'm going to use that. That yes. It doesn't absolve him of the responsibility, which you also refer to. No, but it's a, but it's a great way to, um, diffuse the heat a little bit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, checking on time here. I want to be, I have, I have a, I want to ask you a couple more questions if possible, but if, if you're done and sure, I mean, I'm, I, I'm going to have to go soon, but we'll, we'll, um, we can do a couple more. This is very fun. So we can go a couple more. When someone asks you, how do you feel? What do you say? Oh, well, my, I mean, my best example of this is um, when I was right before the COVID pandemic was announced, I was in New Zealand and, um, and I was getting an honorary degree and I was doing some book talks and, and some academic talks at universities and things. And so there I was in Queensland and Sophia, my daughter was flying literally in the air, flying over for, cause it was going to be her spring break. And this is something we would do every year where I would make sure that I was speaking, you know, somewhere, you know, one year it was Sweden, one year it was France, you know, whatever. And, um, so she's in the air 
and I'm listening to stories, you know, that are starting to emerge. And so I call my husband and I say, her dad, and I say, I am feeling very unpleasant high arousal. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, somebody else would say, I'm so anxious. But the thing is that. So you're covering the valence and the arousal, the two aspects of that. The thing is that because, because, you know, um, what is the, what is the, the behavioral plan for anxiety. It's somebody else tries to calm you down tries to make you feel better. And, you know, but high arousal is really about uncertainty. And really what I was saying to him is I'm uncertain about what the right thing is to do. Should I meet her at the airport and just turn around and fly home? Should we try to have a nice holiday in New Zealand where I think at that point there was one case in Auckland, which was on the North Island and we were on the South Island, you know, like, so, I mean, New Zealand turned out to be a really safe place to be. Um, and so by just labeling it and constructing it and experiencing it as uncertainty, what that led me to do was to problem solve and to look for information to try to make a decision. And, um, and you know, I had a, I made a whole like decision tree of when it would be the right time to turn around and leave. And it turned out, I didn't turn out not to use it, you know, like, because we were actually flying to Auckland where now there were four cases and uh, en route, as we were in the airport flying to Auckland, the UK impounded a, 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 a 747 full of people for two weeks because they thought that um, somebody on board was infected. And I was like, impounded a plane full of people for two weeks that's it we're going home and in the air i rebooked our flights all the way to boston so we base and our you know our luggage met us at home like a week later so so when you answer the question how do you feel with that type of granularity you probably only do so with people who share in that vocabulary. I was going to say, I mean, my lab, you know, the people who know my, my friends who know me really well, who are also scientists, my family, but to the average person, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, I might've said I'm on, I'm, I felt uncertain, (laughs) (laughs) not like I was feeling really high arousal. It was very unpleasant. And I knew that meant that I was feeling that I had some, like a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity and I had to go looking for answers. You know, I wouldn't say those things because they would just look at me like I was nuts. Like your Spock or. Yeah. Yeah. Believe me, no one could be, no one feels more heat than I do. That's just not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not one of these people who like tranquilly floats in a sea. You know, I don't float in a sea of tranquility. That's not my, (laughs) (laughs) that's not my temperament. Um, but um, sometimes emotional granularity means knowing when not to construct an emotion. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and let it, it be, and let it, it be affect. Yeah, let it be affect. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's funny. When I mentioned Spock, I was also thinking that another subtitle to your book could have been like the the robots guide to humans. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> but you know the myth, right, about Spock is that he doesn't feel anything, and he feels a lot. He right? just you know, he just doesn't, um, he just makes sense of it in a different way. When you interview for someone to join your team, do you assess for emotional granularity? Um, no, I assess for, um, openness and a willingness to learn. 
So what I, I don't expect people to come all pre-prepared, but I need them to be curious and I need them to be open to new experiences and not defensive. If they're putting energy into defending how they view things, then they aren't going to learn. They're not going to be open to prediction error. And, you know, learning, you know, the two most expensive things your brain can do, move your body and learn. So imagine yourself in the middle of an hour long run. Like I get to about 20 minutes and I'm, I don't run anymore because I had back surgery. But when I was running, I would run, you know, I'd get to about 20 minutes and I would start to feel really miserable because I'm running a deficit in my body budget and I'm not going to replenish. I might drink water, but I'm not really going to replenish until I'm done. And learning can be unpleasant sometimes because it's hard and um, feeling bad doesn't always mean that something is wrong. It can mean that you're investing energy into building a better, stronger you in the future. And so I look for for students who understand that or who can understand that because being a scientist means you're wrong like 90% of the time and you have to be able to not um, not suffer uh, when you're when you're wrong as we wind down here towards the end I have so many questions that unfortunately it looks like we won't be able to get to like for example I think we could spend a whole hour just on the concept of the self and healthy multiplicity of selves. I have questions about Carl Jung and the unconscious. I'm curious what you think of dreams or how do we think of dreaming in terms of the theory of constructed emotion? Oh, that's easy. Dreams are predictions that are less constrained by sense data from the world. They're still tethered to your body right? Because your brain is still attached to your body. Your body, your brain is regulating your body. Even when you sleep, your body's sending sense data back to your brain. So in, when you're in your waking life, your predictions are held in check, both by the world and by your body. When you're sleeping, they're mostly held in check by your body, but not by the world. So that's why you can have crazy experiences in dreams that you would never have in, in everyday life. Do you wonder if the dreaming is the exercise of the simulation and predictive faculty? Yeah. And in fact, David Eagleman thinks that he's a neuroscientist and he thinks that dreaming um, is, is actually, um, you know, necessary to keep certain um, parts of your brain healthy because they're constantly being stimulated even through the night, like when you're sleeping and there's no, there's no visual inputs there. Um, at a certain point, if you were living in a, a completely dark world, you, you'd lose your ability to see. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's actually a set of, um, there's a set of, um, of science fiction stories um, about the, about, you know, people who crash land on a world and it's dark all the time and they, they lose the capacity to see. Um, and there is evidence from work on rodents that they, you know, they dream, so to speak, they replay um, scenes um, from uh, that they've, uh, um, you know, if they're asked to run, if they're, you know, put in a maze and they're, they're given the goal to run that maze, 
they run that maze again and again and again and again in their dreams. And they actually, their brains start to try out combinations uh, that, which is called, you know, conceptual combination. They try out combinations that they did, that the, the rats didn't actually do in real life, but then the next day the rats can do those combinations like that. Okay. So I wonder if a, 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 a wonderful way to wrap this up maybe would be in terms of relationships and, and our, uh, the importance of considering others and our planet and animals. And, uh, I know you've dedicated some of your musings to like what the world could be like, you know, if we viewed ourselves as more responsible in terms of other beings, bodies, body budgets, could that be a nice way to wrap this up and tidy it up? I mean, we didn't get to talk about the self, um, which is okay. Um, Unless you think there could be another way to wrap this up, that might be a good sending off point for our listeners. Well, I guess I, I don't know. I mean, we could we could go in a number of ways. I mean, the what's interesting about the self is that the idea that you have one enduring self, which remains the same throughout your whole life and regardless of the situations that you're in is um is also a fiction and what's interesting is that you know buddhist contemplative philosophy makes very clear that it's a fiction and all the problems that come with grasping at that fiction and trying to believe in the reality of an enduring self when in fact the self is also a category it's also your brain you know is just it's it your brain is using your past to predict your immediate future, which becomes your present. And if you cultivate new experience, you invest energy to cultivate new experiences for yourself, you can change who you are in a, in a really fundamental way. And people do that. So that's an interesting thing to explore. I Can I ask you about the word fiction? Sure. So I, when I think of fiction, I, I tend to think of things that are, are meaningful and helpful and profound, but I, I don't think of them as true. So I don't think you're saying this, that the self is a fiction. Saying, you know, I don't think you're saying I'm the saying, self is false. No, I'm not saying the self is false. I think it's it's probably useful to believe that you have a set of characteristics that are enduring to you and that will never change. But it's just not the case. <laughs> and, you know, so for example, you might be very extroverted in certain circumstances and very introverted in other circumstances. You might be very honest in which most is, circumstances, but there true. will be some circumstances where you're not honest. Right. There, You might be very kind in some situations and less kind in other situations. So who you are, who you are in the moment is really determined and or summed up by what you do. And what impacts you have on other people? That's like the ontological state, whichever state yeah. you're referring to is, is organized more around an efficacy argument rather than an essentialist argument. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. I'm dissolving essentialism and I'm saying there's more variation to who you are than you probably are aware of. And, um, and there could be even more if you planned your life that way. Yes, um, I like that very uh, much. So, and I, but that does bring us to this other point, which is that 
you know, we live in a culture that really prioritizes individual rights and freedoms. And I have nothing, I have nothing wrong with that. I, I enjoy those individual rights and freedoms. Um, and as a woman, I, I enjoy them now more than I would have, you know, 50 years ago. So I'm all for individual rights and freedoms. I'm all for free speech, just so we're clear about this, okay? But there's a profound and inherent contradiction that we have to deal with as a culture, and that is that um, we have very interdependent nervous systems. And that's the thing that we should be discussing. Or, for example, you know, do we have, um, should, uh, should someone have the right to feed their family, even if they, you know, work in a coal mine? Absolutely. People's economic well-being is very serious and should be taken really seriously. But so should the planet. And one isn't more, there's a conflict there that has to be dealt with. It can't be dealt with by saying, well, this is more important than that, so I'm just going to ignore this, you know, and uh, because it doesn't, like I said, you know, it doesn't really matter in a sense what you believe. If we stay on this path, we will destroy the earth and, you know, we we will reap the uh, the consequences of that or our children will. And, you know, we can deny that we have an impact on each other's nervous systems, but that won't change the fact that we do, and it won't change the public health crisis that's been brewing for a really long time because we ignore that fact. Yeah, I like one way, I like one way that you put it. Each of us can be the kind of person who makes more deposits into other people's body budgets than withdrawals. Yeah, exactly. You know, I used to say, look, look, I'm not really, you know, I used to, I used to be really sensitive about, you know, people saying, oh, you just want people to be kind. And I was like, no, no, that's not really what I'm saying. But you know what? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. I actually think people should be kind. I actually think that people should treat each other with, with dignity, with human dignity, because to not do that, it doesn't mean that you are responsible for somebody else getting sick, like a hundred percent. But every time you treat someone with less than human dignity every time you add a little tax to their body budget. And maybe it's just a really small tax. And maybe it makes you feel better in the moment, but you just added a tax to that person's body budget. And over the long run, if that tax, if those taxes keep accruing, that person is going to get sick. And it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's not going to make it not happen if you just if you just deny it. And this is so, you know, we live in a time where casual brutality is the name of the game. You know, we live in a in a time when people say the most horrible things to each other and about each other and then laugh about it like with a laugh track. And often anonymously. And and often anonymously. And I think that we should think about that. Absolutely. I think we should think about that. I'm also a huge fan of kindness. It's actually one of our three core values, nurture kindness. And we have three key behaviors that support that value. Well, we could go on and on. And there's, there's <laughs> so much could. here. Uh, I, I really highly recommend your books for all the reasons that we've discussed. And uh, we'll be posting uh, links to both in our show notes uh, and a link to your website. Is there anything that 
you have coming up that you'd like to announce or anything uh, specific that? Um... No, I mean, you know, I'm just plugging along like everybody else. And um, I mean, I am working on, I am working on some children's books and I am working on another book, but that's not going to be, you know, in the offing for uh, probably another couple of years. So. Excellent. Well, Dr. Barrett, thank you so much for our conversation and for your contributions to moving us further along in our understanding of the human condition. Speaking of which, you also wrote about scientific revolution and paradigm shifts and the huge potential this particular shift has to transforming our health, our laws, and who we are as humans, both individually and collectively. Is it accurate to say that your work has started a revolution or uh, perhaps maybe more accurately that you've cracked open new ways of thinking or what would be the, the more accurate articulation of that? Yeah, I wouldn't say I started it, but I would say that um, I'm its biggest cheerleader. <laughs> and so um, um, I think that there are a number of like-minded people who are really questioning some of these traditional ways of thinking about things. And, and I think the really cool thing about a scientific revolution is um, not that it answers all the old questions, which could never be answered, but it shows them to be not the best questions to ask. And it leads us to ask really different questions that are much better and are more likely to be answered in a productive way. That's helpful to people. And so I think the the people who are really going to carry this revolution forward if it if it happens if it continues are the are the next generation of scientists really and and the, and the next generation of readers asking more and more questions and being more and more curious being more and more curious and really understanding themselves in relation to others in a in a somewhat different way i love that well thank you so much it is my pleasure. Thank you so much for a very stimulating conversation. Definitely stimulating indeed. Thank you. This was really fun. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the GLOW podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.